Hi everyone and welcome to the People in Place podcast by WSP. My name is Dr Mark Mourned and I'm WSP's Planning and Approvals Team Lead for Regional New South Wales and ACT. This year on the People in Place podcast, we are introducing a mini-series titled Planning for Natural Hazards. I'll be speaking with some brilliant specialists around Australia who can contribute to the conversation around planning for natural hazards and a better future. Before we begin, I would like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where our projects take place and their continuing connection to culture, community, land, sea and sky. We pay our respect to elders, past, present and future. Today we are talking to John Brockoff. He's the National Policy Director for the Planning Institute of Australia. He's a registered planner and a fellow at PEA with over 30 years experience in the public sector and consulting. John's responsible for guiding the Planning Institute of Australia's national policy positions. He works with PEA's membership to advocate for reform that strengthens the value of planning. It's great to have you here, John. Would you like to just introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Mark. I'm John Brockoff. I'm the National Policy Director at the Planning Institute of Australia, and that's PEA. PEA exists to represent the values of professional planners, whether they be in councils, consulting, property industry, different levels of government. And we're all brought together around how we use our skills in the public interest to share land in a way that works for the future and an increasingly uncertain future with the changing climate. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to satisfy my curiosity working for the Planning Institute because we go from one minute dealing with floods and fires to dealing with the economics of the environment to housing policy to planning system reform. And for someone who's as curious as I am and all my colleagues at PEA, it's really great fun. Working in planning, as we both know, is quite a challenging environment. And there's a lot of different bits of information that we need to go through and address and help make decisions. What I do understand is that the role of PEA is to strengthen the value of planning in the community and how it's understood in the community. Planners have different roles in our community in local government, state government, and in consulting. Can you talk a little bit about the approach for PEA? in dealing with those different avenues of planning and how we we'll bring all the information together and the policies that come together across those different organisations and situations? I think all of us in planning are involved in how we share land and how we share what we do with land and we each attack it in a different way. Some of us are regulators, some of us are working with proponents, some of us are working on information to support decisions on how we share land and how we care for it or invest in it. But I think there's a common appreciation of the public interest. What is the public interest? How does the public interest lie when we're sharing land? And I totally respect that the public interest is going to be different from a First Nations perspective, from an ecocentric perspective, from a local community neighborhood perspective. But it's still a really useful context to examine where does the public interest lie? How does the profession support different dimensions of the public interest? And how do we as planners bring the tools of planning to ensure our profession makes a difference? Yeah, and that's a really great point, John. What do you think are some of the best ways to inform the public on the roles of planning and in creating healthy and resilient communities? Well, as planners, we're intimately involved with land and the future of land and the future of communities and how they work and live and enjoy places. And I think there's a natural interest for the community to understand what we do. And in fact, so many people I speak to as a planner are instant planning experts. But what the community at large, I think, appreciate 
is that it's not just about expertise in planning raw or viability or bushfire assessment. It's a particular skill that planners have in being able to look right across the range of fields that affect how we live in a place and work out priorities, work out ways in which we can make orderly decisions, and ultimately how we can deliver a future that works for us based on community and stakeholder involvement in a strategy. And I'd love to bring it back to the precedence of strategy. Yeah, that's great, John. I really agree. So that long-term view, I think, is really important. And we've seen recently the important focus of planning for resilient communities. The Planning Institute of Australia, I know, has policies in certain areas, including climate change and resilient communities. PIA has the National Land Use Guidelines for Disaster Resilient Communities, which is a really useful document that provides a national framework for planning. There are some other documents as well, such as the United Nations Words into Action series, and there's also the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience. So across all these really important policies, it will be good to understand how PIA brings them all together. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think all of that comes down to a couple of key points. Firstly, if you can't remove the risk, move people from the risk. And then secondly, we keep hearing about build back better. It's not build back better, it's build back more resilient. Those two simple homilies summarise PIA's involvement across all of this work. It's about understanding the uncertainties that we're dealing with and recognising that there's risk out there and we've got to deal with that risk accordingly. It's how can strategic planning play its role much more forthrightly in moving people from the risk? And I'd love you to ask me a question about getting past this word resilience because it's in real trouble of going down the same road that the word sustainability has gone down. Okay, well, I'll take that prompt, John. Let's talk about resilience. I think it's a really important objective to have a resilient community. But yes, that can mean many different things. Does that mean that you have, in some cases, some sacrificial buildings, or you don't build in some areas, or you build buildings that have a certain design in some areas, or only allow certain land uses in some areas at risk of disasters? So in terms of yourself, John, and also P's approach to resilience, it would be really great to hear your understanding of that term and what you think it looks like for future communities. It's very hard to plan around the concepts you just described. But if you flip the concept around 180 and say, well, what do we plan for? We plan to make our communities, our places more resilient. And to do that, we want to strengthen characteristics of the systems we plan within. That then asks the question, well, what are the characteristics of resilient systems and what can planning do to strengthen those characteristics of resilient systems? I'd argue that the elements of resilient systems provide us a really strong way of dealing with increasing uncertainty in the natural environment, particularly as it relates to hazards and climate. And we can ask ourselves, well, what are the elements of resilient systems that can help us plan better in that circumstance. And there's been some great work by Rod Simpson and others looking at, well, what about if we look at resilient systems in terms of, is our planning a strategic planning system? Does it look at diversity and scenarios and look at alternatives? And there's a real opportunity to test our strategic planning competencies with asking, when we do a strategic plan, does it look at a diversity of different solutions and timeframes for the future? And does it use scenarios rather than track here are we now in 2022 and this is where we want to be in 2050? 
what are the pathways along the way and what might be the scenarios that we might want to test that will help us navigate a course knowing full well that there's no straight line between now and 2050 and that there will be multiple interferences, pivot points where we have to change our strategy. But we can, looking at different scenarios for the future, look at a pathway or multiple pathways of no regrets and then identifying the future what the pivot points might be. I think another one is this notion of redundancy and modularity, which is a, a strange way of saying we've got to allow ourselves to fail and be quite relaxed about that. We seem to be pent up as planners about getting it right between what we're planning for and what's going to happen in the future. But I think we've got to allow ourselves to fail and build in a degree of redundancy and modularity into our strategic planning. I think that's an element of being more resilient. It's a great way of dealing with uncertainty. And lastly, I think it's really important if we're looking at the elements of resilient systems is to go back to this old notion of subsidiarity. Make sure the least centralized, most locally conscious decision-making body is equipped to make the decisions that need to be made. That might be the council, it might be a community group, or if it's a major investment, it might be the state government, but the lowest level where the best decision can be made. That's great insight, John. I think that's a really important future in that we test scenarios. And you're right, we can't be perfect in our predictions. We do make mistakes. One of the things I think we're learning to be better at and maybe is an area for improvement is monitoring decisions. I do note that the New South Wales Flood Inquiry looked at that history of decisions in floodplain. And one of the things that they talked about is decisions were made, for instance, to build in a floodplain and then a flood occurs, people think that we'll move to other areas, and then a few years later, people make the same decisions to build in floodplains again. I think they use the term rinse and repeat in the inquiry. So I think learning from our decisions and monitoring our decisions is really important, and as I said, it's been identified in a number of areas. How do you think we can improve that monitoring? That's a great comment, rinse and repeat. Before I get to your monitoring question, I'd love to just explore that around we don't really ask ourselves, I mean, we do in a proxy sort of way with our strategic planning, but we don't really ask ourselves clearly enough, what is our appetite for risk? And there are some absolutes in terms of our appetite for risk. I think human life, where is human life at risk? And clearly human life is at risk where there's catastrophic flooding. It's very frequent and it's very dangerous. And you don't just get wet feet, you die. So that's where we've got an issue of the extreme end of risk appetite and then the other end of the spectrum, you know, we've got a risk appetite, which would be expressed by a community around, we don't mind getting the odd flood. For instance, the ground is flat for a hundred miles around this river and town, and we're never going to build ourselves out of it. We've had our house flooded and we certainly didn't mind it, but it's an acceptable risk. If there are different levels of acceptable risk, are we planning these in the way we do our flood planning? Sure, we are through our manuals, we have flood levels and we plan for those, but what about asking the community in the strategic planning process, what is the acceptable level of risk? I would like to think that future strategic plans for a region start to play out, well, these are the areas that are absolutely threatening to human life and we will look at planned retreat and look at the most extreme planning controls. These are areas that seem to have less life-threatening flood or other hazard situations and can be managed through safe access and egress or staying in place, being safe for some time. These are the sorts of community facilities that we need to plan in any case. And all of this can be integrated in community adaptation plans or resilience plans that can be linked 
to the long-term planning strategy and also to the emergency planning strategies of various hazard authorities that are out there. So this notion of risk appetite, building in community priorities for what they think is important in planning and dealing with their own risks, working out what they're comfortable with, and then having that reflected in resilience strategies that are linked to regional and district strategic plans for the long term of decisions on land use. I haven't answered your question on monitoring very well, Mark, but I totally agree the monitoring is essential to keep top of mind the situations that we find ourselves in Australia, particularly given the climate cycles that we seem to historically have with you know, El Nino and Southern Oscillation Index and the Indian Ocean Dipole and whatever. There seems to be cycles happening at decadal intervals and that we need to have a much deeper understanding of the world we live in. But we also have increasing uncertainty with climate change. And I think monitoring the past might not be the only answer. I think we've got to plan for an uncertain future and hence harking back to that discussion we had earlier about how do we build resilience into our planning systems. Yeah, that was a great discussion, John. I agree. The planning for uncertainty is another focus that's really trying to make decisions around the best information you have at the time. And sometimes it's not at an appropriate level of information that you need to make a fully informed decision. So you really just gather all that information, gather all the experts and yeah, make that decision that hopefully will achieve the best outcome. One of the things I would be really interested to hear from you about is legacy decisions. I agree, harking back to the past all the time isn't always productive. However, sometimes we are left with planning decisions that have been made over time again with the best interests at the time and with the best information we have. But there are some communities that are currently exposed to hazard risk. There's been some ways that they've sought to, I guess, deal with those legacy decisions. One of them, you may be aware of Grantham in Queensland, where they've moved an entire town, people who put their hand up to be moved out of the flood-prone area. And there's some discussions currently happening in northeast New South Wales around some of the flood areas, what they could do to existing buildings, existing land uses, and how those communities can be built differently as much as possible. So these legacy decisions also create a challenge for planners. I'd be really interested to understand from your perspective and how PIA looks to approach some of these legacy decisions in terms of if we can reduce that risk or at least improve outcomes for the communities living there. Thanks, Mark. This question is live, of course. We've got a bill for the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority that went through Parliament last week. We watched over the last decade the work in Grantham, which is an outstanding case example of this notion of planned retreat. If the risk is catastrophic, if we can't mitigate the risk, let's move people away from the risk. And that's what happened to Grantham. Grantham was, although quite a small village, it was, I guess, viable without too many zeros on the back of the investment to have a very well thought through, very hands-on community involved. But that detailed and intense treatment can't be replicated over hundreds of centres that are becoming more in threat. So we do need some systems in place to deal with the prioritisation of how we deal with legacy risks. There's going to be a set of them that are like Grantham, where human life is at threat from catastrophic risks, whether it be flood or fire. And if we can't manage that risk in those sorts of situations, then we've got to deal with a planned retreat. But we can't do that everywhere. And we've got to ask ourselves, well, how do we set the priorities for where we invest in planned retreat? I think this is the role of regional strategic planning. 
Yes, those places where everyone lives from an individual farm or household to a city are important for how people live and go about their day-to-day lives, and that's incredibly important. But there's also a broader significance that the community has a whole in terms of the role of different centres and cities. For instance, Lismore, it's a regional service centre for the Northern Rivers. It performs a vitally important role as a hub for agriculture, a way of centralising services so people can live and enjoy good well-being in that part of the world, access substantial retail, have a whole range of higher order jobs clustered in a place with specialisations that relates to Northern Rivers. It serves a really important strategic function as a regional service centre. And that's a role that the community and the state can't afford to lose. So there's these planning reasons as well as the community individual household reasons to want to have a successful Lismore. So if it's of personal importance and of strategic importance and it's under threat in a way that threatens human life, then it must find its way to the top of the list for planning for an investment in planned retreat. PIA have been actively involved with experts who've plotted pathways for dealing with planned retreat at Lismore that essentially need to be community-led and need to work out a plan that can result in a Lismore that has its essential functions preserved. So there's that at the extreme end, but there's a lot of grey below that. Where is it appropriate through planning and resilience strategies to defend circumstances where the risk appetite and the hazard is not as extreme but may be worsening? How do we have communities using the best available evidence with their councils coming up with a patchwork of strategies that may involve defensive strategies, may involve planning strategies around future development, or may involve development standards that pulled up a rung. Then lastly, there are other legacy decisions where the threat might be very great, but the asset might be also very great, and that the opportunity for relocation at scale might be beyond us. I'm thinking examples here like Ballina, Town Centre. You know, that, that may well be a candidate where there's too much sunk already into that centre to ever think of a relocation solution and it may be an investment solution in, in defending it in place. But unless we have those conversations and ask ourselves, which are areas that are catastrophically a threat we may need to invest in planned retreat, particularly where they serve a strategic planning function, which are centres that involve defence in place to defend that substantial investment that could be defended over time? And then which are those settlements which we can plan to cut our losses and plan so that future development is safe and that the hazard can be managed for existing development? And by that, I mean, which centres where we ensure that future development is above whatever's determined as a satisfactory flood level or bushfire hazard area? And what might be supporting investment over time in terms of access and egress that might be flood-free or safe from fire. So because there's prioritisation involved, I think that's, again, a role for the community and a role for strategic planning. And one of the things that came out of both the Bushfire Royal Commission and the state version of that and the flood inquiry was this clear role for strategic planning to help the community or to provide a context for the community to decide what their risk appetite was and how might we plot a way forward? Yeah, that was a really interesting discussion, John. I mean, you've captured a lot of information there that is really what we look at and everyone in the planning industry looks at. So in terms of risk, what's an acceptable form of risk to different communities, the nature of land uses and the options available in terms of engineering solutions, relocation, changing land uses. 
there's so many layers to this conversation. That was a really, really useful summary. Can I just say, Mark, Mary O'Kane called it taking a risk-weighted approach was, I think, her summary in the flood inquiry. Yeah, and Mary's done a great job in that flood inquiry. And the risk-weighting is really the next conversation, I think, in terms of how are those weightings decided and who informs those? It obviously has to be the community and everyone who's affected and then the decision makers and people writing the strategic planning policies as well. So it's a really good way to focus on, again, what's an acceptable level of risk and how do we determine that and then what decisions do we make after that? One of the other things I do want to talk to you about, John, is the disasters that we're dealing with or the hazards that create these disasters, bushfires, flooding, also coastal erosion, heat waves, these cross boundaries and borders. So in terms of that and how to address that, I think one of the things I advocate for is a national policy or a national approach to a lot of these issues. And I think Pia has a key role to play in that. Can you have a conversation for us or present some of Pia's ideas in terms of how do we achieve a national approach to these issues and really getting a level of consistency as much as possible across decisions made that consider some of these issues? Pia does have an interest in planning for climate uncertainty, planning for hazards at a national scale, but we're acutely aware that the tools of planning very much are state and local oriented. But that's not to say there isn't a really valuable role that we can play collaboratively amongst states, local councils across borders, and then with some national leadership on those issues. I'd start with this notion of where does the nation and our Commonwealth government have the most important role in planning places? I'd argue that it's around setting clear and consistent parameters for planning for growth in a changing climate. By that, I mean ensuring that we aren't reinventing the wheel at each local government area, but adopting common sets of climate change, sea level rise, urban heat, and so forth parameters. That's not to say that every regional district is going to have a different climate challenge in terms of urban heat or the way a coastline functions in terms of coastal erosion. But at the global level, we can adopt some common assumptions and have some coherent and consistent pathways for assessing risk at the high level. I'd like to think that regional strategies, if they're done in Geraldton or if they're done in Byron Bay, are using climate parameters, which are largely global, that are using scenarios that are broadly consistent, using methodologies to develop those scenarios, whether it be for urban heat, maybe the modelling for coastal processes, for flooding, that adopts consistent, coherent frameworks and parameters for how those risks unfold globally. And if we do have those consistent, coherent, and potentially common scenarios and parameters for planning, how might the Commonwealth communicate that? And I, and I think there's a, an argument for a national settlement strategy that communicates what those parameters are and points out where that risk's unfolding to different degrees. I'd also argue, at least Pierre's arguing, that a national settlement strategy would have comparable but broader roles in terms of how we plan for growth at a national scale. If we have an awareness of where natural hazards and risks are most prone, we can also have a view as to where our investment in cities and city infrastructure can be most productive and look at the very broadest level where growth at a national scale makes the most sense. I'm not arguing for any direct national involvement on who goes where, but some broad guidance on where there's opportunity and capacity, I think it'd be very welcome across the different states. 
Yeah, no, that's great. That's really important. You've identified the need for access to quality, consistent information, and the national settlement strategy, I think, is a great initiative from Pia. We are almost out of time, John, so I just wonder if there's any other things you wanted to discuss or talk about in terms of this really important conversation. That discussion we had about a national role, it draws his attention back to planning systems that operate mostly out of state legislation. The way we make decisions on future development really is under a planning act of some sort in every state and territory. So the way the planning industry through PIA wanted to influence each and every state planning system was through throwing up 10 climate asks. This is in terms of how we respond to climate change through planning systems. 10 climate asks that we expect each state and territory planning system to respond in a different way. So there's no prescriptive answer for how you respond to, for instance, adopting carbon budgets at a precinct scale or adopting flood levels for future communities. But we can ask every planning system around the country to respond to different benchmarks that demand action. So Peter have had this advocacy plan that we've been rolling out for the last year of how does each state and territory respond to improving our regional strategies to deal with climate resilience? How does each and every planning system deal with enabling renewable energy projects to proceed as smoothly as possible through the planning system? How does each and every planning system adopt the best practice performance criteria for low energy buildings or use of renewables and sustainable houses? So we've been trying to ensure that the great work in each state and territory is understood by every other state and territory and that all of them are pushed towards best practice as fast as possible. Thanks, John. It has been great talking to you. I think you've reaffirmed for me the importance of planning in dealing with natural hazards and the really important role that town planners have in helping dealing with a lot of the challenges we have to deal with in the future and we're currently dealing with. And really sharing that information as much as possible across the industry is a really important way to help each other make informed decisions and build on the knowledge that we have, access to information, sharing that information, best outcomes really important processes within. And I really appreciate the role that yourself and Pia have in helping forward or present a lot of that information to the community. Thanks for your time, John. Thanks, Mark. And thanks for your role, particularly with New Planet. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you're interested in the work we're doing, please get in touch. Our links will be in the podcast show notes. Goodbye. Goodbye.